Aunt Viv, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X three times. And that makes you a serious student on black history. But that's a very important book. Well, baby, you can read that book. You can wear the t-shirts, you can put up the posters, and you can shout the slogans. But unless you know all the history behind it, you're trivializing the entire struggle. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that apparently fits on fits a post-it. On a post-it notes. I was around here searching for my book for um, this opus, all the notes I took. And all the notes I took are on this one little post-it. So if you're listening from home, you can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you got small handwriting. Yeah, you have to with all this. See, and that's the problem. There's a lot on this little post-it, so it's not even like there's a few things. Um, wow. So um, first and foremost, thank you um, for tuning in. Um, I want to give a huge shout out, first and foremost, I just want to get this out, to uh, Dale Woodbeck from Excelsior Bay Books. Um uh, uh, Dale was very moved by the opus of Triloquy um, that featured Caesar, our uh, conversation about Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dale sent me a graphic novel um, about the life of Paul Robeson. I mean, a really, really, really incredible book. It was um, published this year, um, it looks like. So I just wanted to offer a huge, huge, huge thank you for the book and thank you for listening to Dale Woodbeck. I've never been out there to um, to Excelsior, Scott, but, but you know that neck of the woods, right? I've been out there a couple times. Uh, there was a woman that I dated who lived out near there. And so we were in that little, quote unquote, downtown Excelsior quite a bit. Um, it's so stinking charming. You can hardly stand it. I mean, it's just so freaking cute. Now, this is what I want to know, because you know Excelsior. Think about that community, stereotypically or otherwise. Is Triloquy the podcast that you would expect to find there? I would not. <laughs> nope. Nope. So look at look at the impact. Look at the reach. Wow. Wow. But we also saw somebody had trill, true, and real written on the outside of their business in Minneapolis a couple right. of weeks ago. And, and I might need to uh, make a phone call, but we'll mm. see. If they, they better not start talking about triloquy because that, that is a trademark. Mm-hmm. That triloquy is an American That's trademark. That's true. Anyway, I'm getting off the track here. So yes, shout out and thank you to Dale Woodbeck. Uh, I wanted to uh, shout out the National uh, Philharmonic. Um, I just got off the call uh, with them. Uh, uh, they had a, a program uh, called Harmonic Justice. Um, I, I kind of had to... Um, I hope it wasn't rude, but there was something that happened toward the end um, that I promised everyone that I would address in this opus. So that's coming up in the triloquy. So that's coming up in the final movement. And I'm going to pop my popcorn. <laughs> um, uh, the downbeat uh, was brought to you today by Janet Louise Hubert, who, you know, many of us know as the first Aunt Viv. I uh, watched the uh, Fresh Prince reunion uh, over the weekend, the 30 year anniversary special. And Paul Robeson actually came up in it um so i thought i would just you know honor that and and uh, say a few words about that um, in the first movement that's uh that's coming up uh, do you have any uh, announcements here i just want to give a shout out to molly munez you know how every once in a while garrett you get your head down and you know you're just buried in work or mired in emotion or whatever mm-hmm. and you're just feeling overwhelmed and then every once in a while that note comes through, yeah, you know, and so Molly sent a really nice note 
at just the right time. So thanks for that, Molly. Yeah, shout out to Molly. Um, we have a little bit of Grammy talk coming up, um, a, a little bit about um, a Christmas story. Right. Um, you had um, some music, some some Grammy music that you put me on to our artists. Do you, uh, well, first off, do you know the name Blind Tom Wiggins? I did know that name, and I do know who he is, but I imagine a lot of people don't. Okay, so we want to talk a little bit about people not getting the attention that they should. Right. Okay, so... Uh, Blind Tom Wiggins is one of those. Also, Bryce Desner, if you know that name, he um, is a twin guitarist, vocalist, uh, two members of the band The National. Mm-hmm. But he he works in all kinds of other music, and he's got some compositions um, with a Kronos Quartet that I was really loving. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to get into that. In the third movement today, I'm going to feature a conversation uh, that I had actually a couple weeks ago uh, with a woman named Donna Walker Kuhn. I was introduced uh, to Donna uh, through Caesar. Again, shout out to Caesar and through our, you know, Buddhism practices. Um, but she's actually the author of a book um, on arts equity. Um, it's it's an incredible book um, called Invitation to the Party. Um, I'll have links to that uh, and, and everything in the description of this. But uh, the third movement is going to feature that uh, conversation. And in the finale, in the grand finale, in the triloquy, um, again, I'm going to um, address something um, with the National Philharmonic out of love. Out of love, no shade. Out of love, uh, <laughs> and we're as Scott. We're also going to talk a little bit if we have time. We'll see how long this runs. Um, about the idea of a wider audience. You know, we kind of got onto that conversation. Yeah, I look forward to that. So yeah, here we go. That's everything that was written on this post-it note. So here we go. <laughs> Movement one. So, Scott, um, it is officially the holiday season. Um, first and foremost, I just have to say, and again, no shade. I, I don't want to be apo- apologizing all opus long, but no shade. But the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade felt a little sad to me. To say more about <laughs> that, because, I mean, it's a, it's still a parade. There were no people, but you still had... Um, um, the man from the news who lost all the weight running around. Al Roker. Al, you still have Al Roker running around out there with the floats people. You have the host. It was kind of dreary and wet looking. No crowd. It looks packaged and pre-produced for television and all that stuff. So, Well, what about the know. bands? Aren't they playing or doing like the same song over and over and over throughout the Well, room? there were no marching bands. So it was only floats and floats with uh, like pop singers on them or whoever and you know there were some little the Broadway acts the way they do but there were no marching bands you know that's a COVID that that's one of the things that COVID has done man I can't believe that I forgot okay so there's like half of the of the right. show right there right but it's it seems piped through and for anyway I'm not trying to shit on the Macy's Day Parade but that I, that's when uh, that was a moment when COVID, the realness of COVID, hit me a little bit. So you know, because mm. that's the beginning of the holiday season. So, sure. but we're we're gonna push through. But anyway, I'm talking about the holiday season because I wanted to go ahead and get one of my favorite holiday season movie watches out of the way. Um, and that film is a Christmas story. You know, the story. Um, the it's movie. It's a favorite. 
the movie that features the Grand Canyon Suite and uh, and what else? Peter and the Wolf and Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, I, I think it's it's fun to go back and listen to those pieces. Those are Christmas tunes to me now, almost the on the trail from the uh, from the Grand Canyon Suite. And there's a few houses around in town here that have a fragile lamp. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I went ahead and watched it. And before I even cut it on, you know, because everyone has seen it a kajillion times, I'm thinking in my equitable mind, you know, I'm, you know, being the soldier. And I remember that at the very beginning of a movie, you have a, a quick clip of a black choir singing Go Tell It on the Mountain, mm. you know, when they're showing the, you know, uh, the different festivities. So I was like, OK, so let me go look up who this is so I can give them a shout out on Triloquy next time I record. So I went to the IMDb and it says non-credited. So I had to go look up where they filmed the movie and blah, blah. and anyway, so I did find an article. So this comes from Cleveland19.com from December of 2001. So this is old news, but new news to me. It says Cleveland, uh, the title of the article is Cleveland played a big role in telling a Christmas story. It says uh, the movie A Christmas Story is a holiday classic that was shot primarily in Cleveland. And so almost 20 years later, 1943 News' Paul Orlovsky decided to revisit the movie that has become a piece of Americana. Um, the Cleveland Salvation Army Band played, I'm skipping ahead, the Ohio Boys Choir sang, along with the Holy Trinity Baptist Church Ensemble from East 131st Street. So this movie um, that was shot, you know, in the early 80s um, included this bit of classical music we talk about the negro spirituals and all Mm -hmm. you know so that bit of classical music the imdb doesn't credit it um this cleveland-based website i guess is probably one of their news affiliates shouts them out so i wanted to make sure that for all the people going back to watch it be sure to pay special attention to that and let's honor the history that's there let me read it again the holy trinity baptist church ensemble from east 131st street in cleveland did it get did they get credited in the film credits though? I'm not talking IMDb. I'm talking yeah. about the ones that roll by. Yeah, I was. I watched it, and I may. I probably missed it, you know. But like, I I, I was really mm. searching and trying to mm. find this, and I couldn't find it there. So I just went on the internet and did some diving. So anyway, yeah. just, I, I just wanted to make sure I said that. Uh, shout out to uh, Holy Trinity Baptist Church uh, in Cleveland. It's probably still a church, you know, and the and the historic, you know, ness of it. Sure. And, yeah. Um, I have to get in my viewing of Elf a couple times because it is my hope that Elf will get to the stature of a Christmas story to where, you know, the day after Christmas, the day after Thanksgiving, it's on a 24 hour loop. Mm-hmm. I think it's TBS. Don't they do the something 24 like Yeah. WGN, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, yeah. I hope that Elf gets that status after. I watched. Yeah, yeah. I, I've already watched Elf as well, and and like I texted you, I, <laughs> I, I always start rolling my eyes at the movie. But I was getting choked up at the end when he was reading the names it. from Santa's list. It does. Oh my it. gosh! I believed. I believe. I wish Santa would come up in here and bring me the air fryer that I want. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got Santa's direct list, and you're going to ask for an air fryer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, um, shoot a little higher, Garrett. <laughs> Ask for that sure microphone and see if you can get a couple of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, in the in in the meantime, um, here's a, a this isn't Holy Trinity Baptist Church, but here is the tune that you can hear them singing in uh, a Christmas story. Go tell it on the mountain, the uh, Negro spiritual. Go tell it on. 
And that gets us sharp, by the way. Here we go. Last week we went through the whole process <laughs> of telling everybody. And anyway, sharp. That's great. It was great for me to find that. So yeah, I've got a sharp too. Um, we were talking about uh, various famous people coming forward and saying, "Hey, uh, this uh, white heritage is getting ca- uh, canceled out here. You know, we need to stand by our." Uh, hot 100 composers, you know, all the European ones, sure. right? Okay, so we got another one to put out. And I was a little surprised at this one because it comes from Maestro Daniel Barenboim. Wait a minute, and you're giving this a sharp? I'm giving this a flat. Oh, okay. Did I say sharp? See, that's why we say check our accidentals, see? Did I say sharp? Yep. <laughs> well, it's okay. Just, yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah I, all right. I'm, I'm, I, miss, I miss sharps all the time. Listen to my master's recital. I'm with, uh, all right, so... Um, <laughs> I was a little bit surprised that he came out with uh, an interview that touched on the colonialist uh, nature mm-hmm. of classical music. Now, I have to say that the lead the uh, on this, the, the headline was, it's rubbish to say that classical music is colonialist. Now, I have to say that they, they only cover it for two paragraphs within the story. So, I mean, that's not really even the meat of it. But and using the word rubbish, you already too bougie for me. See, you well, already don't like the energy. <laughs> so, uh, basically, this uh, interviewer came out and said, um, "Let's talk about the aspects of cultural colonialism." Up to this point, he said, "Baron Boim seemed relaxed, but suddenly I see a flash of anger that can make him a terror mad, in mad. orchestral rehearsals." Quote, "That is utter rubbish." Of course, much of this music was created at a time when colonialism existed, but the essence of music, its real nature, has nothing to do with that. Hmm. Now, he backed this up by saying that he played, he went to hear uh, work with a, an orchestra in the Congo where they had to make their own instruments to play and got virtually nothing for it. And... Um, a German conductor says, don't you feel strange playing the music of our Beethoven? And the kids said, you know, no, it's beautiful. You know, we, 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 we should be playing this. And I'm going, but Daniel, that one story, <laughs> that one story, <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? Am I? Mi- well, well and, and let me ask um, Maestro Berenboim, okay, fine. You asked, do they feel strange playing your Beethoven? Well, what what of theirs did you learn? I, I, I would love to know that story. I will, I will probably guess that he, yeah. they didn't do too much of that, huh? No, they didn't. And then as far as the article goes, they take a right-hand turn into his uh, West Eastern Divan Orchestra. Yeah, the Is that West Eastern Divan Orchestra. Divan Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So with uh, um, a whole mixture of Middle Eastern uh, backgrounds coming together and playing mm-hmm. music together. Yeah. So that's why I was surprised. Yeah, and, and, and how playing. Uh, so you had, um, you know, um, Middle Eastern cultures as well as Jewish people, you know, folks playing who, together. Right. Who had traditionally, you know, been uh, at odds. Exactly. You know, how music brought them together. You know, that, that, that and, Be- and, and even music of Beethoven. Sure. Um, I, I actually think, you know, um, I will agree, you know. In the article, you know, you say he speaks to the essence of music, you know, um, how there's nothing colonialist about that. Look, I will acknowledge that, you know, music definitely, you know, much, a lot of music definitely has the, you know, just general beauty, just mm-hmm. the, uh, this mm-hmm. is a beautiful work of art, objectively. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's not the case. 
What I am saying is that the way that we um, tier this music and rank this music and appreciate it and program it above X, Y, and Z and consider it amongst the greats, all of that plays a role in the colonialism. Mm. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's what's being missed here. We're not trying to get Beethoven out of here. We're saying Beethoven has been disproportionately observed because of colonialism and and because of all of those sort of systemic racism, whatever. I think that's what's being missed. This year in particular, the 250th anniversary of his birth. So Mm -hmm. you know that every single thing he wrote is coming up later this month. He's getting a workout, you know. But no, I mean, there were orchestras that were planning festivals leading up to mm-hmm. it. COVID, you know, and look at God. squashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That happened. Anyway. So, yeah, I'll post that um, article from the uh, the Telegraph, correct? Uh, there's a couple of different places that have picked it up. But, um, you know, they touch on some other, they, they touch on, on other things. But just for those two paragraphs... You know, I, I, I really wish that they would have dove into that further, mm-hmm. you know, rather than going, you know, it was almost like it was a glancing blow and the interviewer went, ah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk about that. I'm Respectability. Gonna... That's that's what that was. Do you think? Yeah. The, he, he didn't want to make Barabow too mad if I, you know, and call me out, call me out if, if that's not right. But that's what I would guess. That's what it seemed like, huh? Interesting point. Anyway, hmm. um, Beethoven. We don't talk about, uh, I was talking to Caesar, shout out to Caesar, like he's, he's, you know, right hand man as far as learning and discussions of classical music and all that. Um, we were talking about uh, Wellington's Victory. Do you know that Beethoven piece? Yeah. I think it's yeah. called Wellington's Victory. I yeah. hope I'm remembering that correctly. Mm-hmm. Some people say it shouldn't be played on the radio and, and things like that because of the cannons, because that might be triggering for some people. Maybe. Anyway, so here are those cannons, and here's that piece. So what are, what are they doing with Tchaikovsky's 1812 then? Is that like recorded cannons now? Is it the just the... Do they just fire just gunpowder or what? When I would play in the before time and and before Minnesota, when I would play all of these Fourth of July celebrations, it sounded like the cannon was there. Maybe it was just like a, right behind you. Yeah, like maybe it was a firework. I should I should find out what that what where that noise was coming from huh. because it definitely sounded like a cannon. So I don't know what they're doing, but hmm. and it would be in time and everything. Cool. Surely there wasn't a percussionist back there with a with, long with, match. With a fuse. And, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why am I feeling silly today? Uh, we're going to talk about the Grammys of just a little bit um, because shout out to some of the classical people and but you know validation from these people anyway we'll get into it but I just wanted to quickly mention um, especially considering the downbeat. Um, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air 30 year anniversary uh, that I watched. So, first of all, you said, you know, when that was on TV, you were outside. I was basically. out doing stuff. You, you, you were outside. Well, and life was starting to pick up. Like, what years was Fresh Prince? Oh, I think it started in 1991, 1990 or 1991. Okay, so I'm, I'm 21, 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You outside? I, I was not at home in front of the television. You outside. Well, I was inside and. We 
watch just like everyone else my age and whatever did and it was just kind of a show but you know just like with many of those shows how they you know squeeze the nostalgia out you know to see these actors how they've aged and going back and thinking about how revolutionary of a show that was um, portraying black excellence in that way and not necessarily um, you know black excellence as in this is a rich black family but you saw all of these different types of black people doing different things things and of mm-hmm. course for a television show things are exaggerated and characters are really characters but um I was yeah. I was really glad to see him transition from you know like the the fun story rap and mm-hmm. and the fresh prince type of thing into his more mature career because he he's got so much talent and I wasn't paying much attention when he was doing like DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. I wasn't paying much attention. Summertime was probably the mark where I went, oh, okay. Yeah, that that, that song still hits. Yes, it does. On the right day. But you know what I mean? You know, he he hit an evolution. Well, it's it's interesting because he said, uh, and he talks about this, uh, Will Smith talks about this in the documentary, how he was doing his music thing, whatever. Somebody had the idea for a show and uh, Will Smith somehow got connected with Quincy Jones mm. at a party, you mm. know, an industry party there with all the musicians. Quincy Jones is like, hey, they got the somebody got the idea for this show and we need you to audition for it. And Will Smith is like, well, give me a couple weeks. I'll get an acting coach, blah, 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 da, da, da. Anyway, long story short, Quincy Jones talks him into doing the audition right then and there. So he had never acted before, but he just made something up and that began this big grand thing for him. So you can, you never know. You never know the things that can happen to you. Um, Anyway, uh, one of the things that I was moved by, um, the the actress who played Ashley Banks, uh, Tatiana Ali, she talked about in the documentary, growing up on the show, you know, she was on it from age 11 to 17. So had her first kiss on the show. She grew up on the show. So much of what she learned um, as far as acting, as far as black history, as far as life came from James Avery, who, of course, played mm. Uncle Phil. She even talked about how James, the, the late James Avery, I should say, talked about how he introduced her to Paul Robeson to bring him up again and the different other figures in uh, black history that have been uh, so impactful and, and, and whose names we're just beginning to know. There are lots of folks who still have never heard of Paul Robeson, despite the fact that he was the most famous person alive when he was alive, you know. So they're mm. just they're just little things like that. There's the conversation of police brutality throughout that show, you know, uh, seriously and in jest, uh-huh. you know, as, as something that's existed. That was the early 90s. So we're talking about nearly 30 years now, and we're still having this the exact same conversation, you know. I think they're a little more frank now, though, don't you think? I, I feel like they were frank then, but they were viewed as just joking. There's a scene um, that all of the Fresh Prince viewers will remember where they go to court for something I'm not remembering right now, and Jazz, Jazzy Jeff, goes to the stand as a witness and holds both of his hands up, and he makes the joke that... No way. Dude's got a gun. Next thing you know, I got six warning shots in my back. (laughs) So in that time... Making that sort of joke, oh, as soon as I put my hands or whatever he said, you know, I'll have seven warning shots in my back. That might be something foreign for someone who has never thought of the police as 
bad or, you know, ever making mm. mistakes or wrong decisions. But for all the black folks watching that show, it was, yeah, of course, you know, that was just a matter of fact. And here we, like I said, here we are still today. Mm. didn't deal with that anyway i just wanted to um, make sure i shout out that out um that that documentary reminded me of um the quote that we got from aunt viv the first aunt viv who uh who they honor um uh janet uh louise hubert uh on the documentary who will smith apologizes to and all that i, I won't get into all of that but um if you were a, a fresh prince watcher i would definitely suggest checking it out it's only on hbo max this is not an ad so don't ask me to tell you how to get to it or whatever <laughs> but um anyway since you mentioned scott since you mentioned summertime it's it's real cold today here in minnesota it's in the teens so let's listen to a little bit of that summertime to warm up here it is a groove slightly transformed just a bit of a break from the norm just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control it's cool to dance but what about a groove that soothes and moves and rounding out this first movement, checking out our accidentals. Oh, the Fresh Prince gets a sharp, of course. Look mm. at me. Look at me. Just it's, it's these accidentals. Um, the uh, final <laughs> accidental here. I'll give this a natural because I don't know if I'm excited or don't care. I'm somewhere in between. Um, are the Grammys. Um, let me first say congratulations to everyone who is uh, associated with or uh, a group that got a Grammy or nominated yourself for a Grammy. I know that is a huge, huge, huge honor. Hell, if truly we won a Grammy, I suppose I would be excited. But Scott, let's be real. Um, a lot of people just don't care anymore, specifically a lot of the black artists um, in, in pop and otherwise. A few opuses ago, didn't you have a picture of one of these, uh, a Grammy Award in the toilet? Oh, was yeah, that, that was Kanye. <laughs> yeah, so Kanye doesn't care. Uh, the, uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, one opus, I can't remember. I think we started with uh, one of Drake's Grammy Award speeches where he talks about, you don't need one of these, this doesn't matter, X, Y, and Z. Right. So, you know, that, that sentiment is, is sort of growing. And um, I'll, I'll, before I get into this article that I'll read a little bit from, Scott, I wonder, just in general, do you feel about the Grammys the same way you feel about maybe the Academy Awards? They say that's even loftier and further away from the people. But the Grammys kind of seems to be there, too, especially when it comes to, you know, the hip hop and some of this other stuff that you wouldn't expect a Grammy board to. No. And, you know, I wouldn't know any of the ones that are up for an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. um, I might go and look at them after. Yeah. If I see who made it, <laughs> made it to the dance. Uh, with Grammys, I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I'm listening to what I like. And what I like typically doesn't get up there. It's sometimes, and I can't speak to this for the classical, and uh, we can talk about Grammy voters and all that, but, you know, for the what they call the big awards, to me it's just always seemed like what the machine wants us to hear, or mm. wants, wants yeah. us to know. Yeah, accurate. Um, I, I think, I, and I won't spend much time here at all because there's there's there there's a lot of weeds here. But I'm gonna post a video, uh, a video, an article from the website Brooklyn Vegan um, that sort of talks about some of the pop backlash from the weekend and Nicki Minaj and Scott. I just wanted to um, read, uh, recount Nicki Minaj's uh, quote. She this is, comes from Twitter. It's also here in the article. Uh, she says, "Never forget the Grammys didn't give me my best new." 
Artist Award when I had seven songs simultaneously charting on Billboard and bigger first week than any female rapper in the last decade. It went uh, I went on to inspire a generation. And then she continues here to say, they gave it to the white man, Bon Iver. Hashtag Bon Iver. Bon Iver, sorry. <laughs> see, see, <laughs> hashtag Pink Friday. So I, I, I don't even know, and no shade to Bon Iver. I don't even know this person well enough to pronounce their name correctly. But let's face it, anyone who has been alive in the past 20 years has heard of the name Nicki Minaj. Mm-hmm. And her allegation is that you see how the Grammys do? They mm-hmm. don't even give me, you know, my flowers and everybody knows me. And I'll, you know, seven, what did she say here? Seven songs simultaneously charting on Billboard. That's a big deal. Seven songs. So, you know, you have multiple compositions out there that people know. I'm, I I hear Nikki. I hear what she's saying. I don't know how many singles Bon Iver has out there, but I can tell you that I haven't listened to his music past his first release. So I'm not saying it's not bad, but, you know, uh, I, those kind of numbers speak a little bit louder is what I'm saying, because mm-hmm. I haven't I, I didn't even know that Bon Iver was still releasing stuff, if that tells you anything. So. And, I, and I tread lightly, because like I said, I know a lot of people, a lot of uh, so-called classical folks, you know, colleagues who p- play in these orchestras and small ensembles and chamber groups that get nominated for these Grammys. You know, uh, my, my teacher and, you know, her husband, um, you know, I, I, I know folks who, you know, are involved with this. So I don't mean to shit on the Grammys. As much as I mean to say uh, the conversation of do we really need their validation is growing. And Mm -hmm. I'm listening to that conversation because what if we just counted on what we think, not a voting committee or whoever's out here or out there? Does it really matter? I think more people are asking themselves that question, especially the artists. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I will say that, you know, um, my favorite composer, Beyonce, is is nominated for several things. She leads the pack. You know, uh, of course, you know, the Grammys has enough sense to understand that. Um, and, <laughs> and the song of the year, uh, uh, in the song of the, among her many nominations, in the song of the year category is one called Black Parade. So here's a little bit of that to slide us into this second movement. You want to talk about artists not getting the attention they deserve? Mm -hmm. I want to go all the way back to a gentleman who was a piano player and composer from the late 19th century, Blind Tom Wiggins. Now, that was not his birth name. He was named after the general who owned the plantation that he was born on. So he was born into slavery, uh, born blind. And uh, they kind of want to dress the story up like, you know, simply because he was blind, he had it better. You know, he was living in a room next to the house, you know, and he got to uh, have access to the piano because he really responded to that. But they didn't have ways of identifying uh, autism and uh, Asperger's syndrome and things like that that we do now. Mm -hmm. So he probably would have been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. He couldn't even... Uh, speak to his own needs, but he could repeat back a speech that he heard and even mimic people in the crowd like perfectly, you know, so he had that total savant Mm -hmm. sort of recall and he was paraded around on tour sort of like what P.T. Barnum might have done, right? Of course. And made somewhere along the lines of $100,000 a year for 
who are the family that own this for the white pla- people for, yes. the, for the white people, right? Which would have been like a million and a half in today's money, mm, something mm, like that, mm, a year, right? So, um, I went and I checked out some of his piano stuff, and it's and it's a lot like what you would expect from the time, uh, you know, sort of rag influenced, but it's really interesting the way that he wove in other things that he must have been hearing at the time Mm -hmm. you know like Dixie uh, makes its way into uh, his piece called The Battle of Manassas and um, I don't know it's a it's an interesting eight minutes worth of of music it's followed up by uh, some words by Mark Twain Uh, but there's also a a piece called the uh, the rainstorm that he was essentially mimicking the way the rain sounded on the roof of the of the house. But at the end of the 19th century, he was one of the most popular touring pianists around. So uh, I, I bet if there were Grammys and he didn't get one, I bet he probably would have been pissed. There is a lot there. First of all, how did you um, did you how did you get on Blind Tom Wiggins? Just listening to his music or thinking about him, or well, where did that come from? You sent a link to YouTube. Somebody talking about various artists wondering what the value of the the Grammys uh, would would be and talking about uh, the artist called The Weeknd, you know, was um, heavily featured in the story that you sent me. Mm -hmm. I started to think about the value that an artist creates, right? And who benefits from it because, I mean, it's a bigger machine. You see artists with lots of money and they're exhibiting it in their videos and things like that. There's a lot of money in it, but how much are we not seeing that's part of the, you know, the, the, the back end of the machine, the record company, the agents, the execs, the recording industry, et cetera, et cetera. And there's probably still just getting a fraction of it. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. So I started thinking about that and uh, with just through a very short uh, web search, uh, I found the story of Blind Tom Wiggins. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Well, there's a lot there because calling him Blind Tom Wiggins is probably problematic. Mm-hmm. But then calling him by the slave name is trash, too, when you think about it. And since he was largely nonverbal being able to advocate for himself. Oh, my God. So, he you probably, know, they treated him like nonsense. That's what I'm saying. You know, so he didn't have any say in the way they referred to him. He, you know, they said that he would fill 12 hours out of every 24 with music, that he would just go. Can you imagine what his day-to-day must have been like? Just working on like the a road. horse. On just, the road, yeah. How traumatic. America is traumatic. Um, but very important that people understand that he existed. Because, you know, obviously a lot of folks don't. So, yeah, um, definitely go out. Just Google, read the Wikipedia, whatever. Just learn about Blind Tom Wiggins, one of the many names that aren't said enough, aren't aren't spoken enough. Not getting the attention they deserve. How about yeah. that? Yeah. 
Um, you know, on a on a more contemporary note, uh, last week um, we talked a little bit about Megan the Stallion and you know so-called girl music, and that conversation has evolved in different channels in a in an interesting way. We, we won't talk about it today, but but that conversation is definitely growing. Is interesting, you know, the idea of so-called girl music. But anyway, um, what what I didn't get a chance to do that I wanted to do was shout out a, a Memphis producer, Tay Keith, who um, has you know collaborated with all sorts of folks, Beyonce included. Um, there's a really incredible song uh, by uh, Cardi B and uh, 21 Savage. Um, yeah, but uh, what you always know, um, you know, you, you know that he touched it. You know that it's his beat, his project by hearing this producer tag. So that example, you know, is uh, from a from a Drake tune, but um, you know, it's it's all over everything. You know, listen l- listen to you know when, when you go deep in there, if you hear that tag, you're listening to some Memphis music. So I just wanted to make sure um, I shouted him out. We don't talk about the producers a lot when we talk about these big awards, the Grammys. There there are categories for them, but you know, of course, they don't make it to a lot of the TV. Uh, things. Right. So just wanted to make sure I did that. You know, for loving loving on Memphis these days. So shout out to Take Keith. I think my producer tag would be the Beyond. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a good producer tag. That's also our, you know, it's sexy tag. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> very good, very good. All right, um, all right, producer uh, <laughs> Bryce Desner. We talked a little bit about him before we cut the mics on. How about you tell the folks um, about this person? Bryce and his brother Aaron are both members of the band The National. How do you know? Do you know The National? No. Were they Grammy nominated or something? <laughs> I bet at one point. <laughs> I think at one point they were. Um, they they're commonly associated with hipster culture. Mm. I would say, you know, or the sort that you know carry their typewriter into the coffee shop. So also, I definitely don't know work it. Work on their blog. Stay super late tonight, picking apples, making pies. Put a little something in our lemonade and take it with us. Put half away. That, that sounds. They're, the yeah. analog blog. No. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> them. Um, no, they've got a lot of great tracks, but um, Bryce has been working with a lot of different genres a lot of different ensembles most recently with the Kronos Quartet was the one that I heard with uh, a project called Ahem You're really doing a great job of finding these artists that live in rock or, or other genres, so-called rock, maybe, I don't know. Sure. And come over and write these compositions. I think that's cool. I, I want to see way more of that. It's happening a lot. I want to I see more of it put to the front, I should say. Sure, it's happening more and more. And I and I think that the fact that people are starting to realize that there is a thirst for it, mm-hmm. that the audience will go there with you instead of listening to a Mozart string quartet sure. let's listen to the chronos quartet play something by bryce desner you know and uh you know bryce is a grammy award winner uh, in his own right uh he worked with eighth blackbird mm-hmm. on a release called filament Thank you. 
that's called murder ballads, you know. Mm. And this is one of these instances where I was listening to it uh, several weeks ago and thinking, well, that doesn't really match the <laughs> that doesn't really match the, the the vibe of the music. But okay, but for who? I get it. But for who? I I don't know. But See? I do love the way uh, the Kronos Quartet with the Desner piece I Haim create this sort of neoclassical feel. You know, it sort of reminded me of Prokofiev, but with um, a modern, like, um, even nat- more, even more modern because Prokofiev, you know, sure. modern era. Right. But like, um, you know, like something like the now ensemble might bring, mm-hmm. you know, just the, an electricity about it that I really enjoyed. And eighth Blackbird, you know, they put, they put out a lot of daring stuff, I think. But there's some tea actually that one, one day we'll get into, I'll, I'll, I'll get the right guest on to really break it down. But I don't, I don't know if, uh, I'm 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 kind of shaky on Eighth Blackbird based on some of the stuff I've heard on the streets oh, in the music yeah. community. Yes, yeah, some, some mm. anyway. Um, Bryce Desner, his brother is nominated for some Grammys, but Bryce is not right. <laughs> just only when, I just, I just when, needed to throw that out when when he's wor- working with other projects. Right, <laughs> right, right. So anyway. <laughs> Um, we've spent enough time here, so whatever with the Grammys, you can um, learn about everyone nominated for a Grammy by Googling who is nominated for a Grammy 2021. That's what I did, and then you'll get to the website. Uh, to, so to move us into uh, my conversation with uh, Donna walker Kuhn, uh, I wanted to bring up uh, producer David Frost. So we talk about, you know, again, how producers don't really, you know, always get their flowers or whatever. So I went on the Grammy list and saw um, what uh, Chicago ensembles were nominated. I was hoping to see something by the Chicago Symphonietta or something. I mm-hmm. didn't, but you know, Chicago Symphony is on there uh, for some of the recordings that uh, Mr. Frost, David Frost, uh, produced. So I wanted to make sure that um, you know, I guess I would give them a shout out for uh, their Grammy nomination because Donna is from Chicago. She lives in Harlem now, but that's where she started uh, her journey. Um, in this interview, uh, we talk a little bit about. That journey about um, arts equity, of uh, the differences between community engagement and audience development, something that I've really been pushing on all of the panels and things I've been on. So, um, yeah, this uh, performance, uh, so to get us into that, this performance by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Um, features their take on the 13th symphony of Dmitry Shostakovich, one of my faves, top five, number five, as far as composer. So, yeah, here's that, and here's my conversation with Miss Donna Walker Kuhn. Audience development is transactional. That's the key word. Audience development is looking at target audiences for the purpose of a transaction, whether they purchase a ticket or to attend an event for free. We want them to do something. As, and that's how we measure success. Mm-hmm. How many tickets were sold, how many people uh, you know, took advantage of this particular offer. And so audience development was really evolved during the the late 80s and definitely very strong in the 90s as many um, presenters were were developing works for people of color, Um, some for the LGBTQ community, but primarily people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, now we want to get them to come. So the whole idea was we create the work in our space and then you come and see it here with us. 
And so whether it's the August Wilson play, um, whether it's Dance Theater of Harlem, Ailey, <clears throat> Broadway, all of the shows on Broadway are audience development, uh, which is, you know, very focused. Here's the play. Never know how long the play is going to run. I'm coming out with you with a solid marketing campaign, advertising campaign. And my expectation is that you want to purchase tickets. Mm -hmm. And that's the success of these efforts. So when I'm in the room um, as a you know marketing company hired to engage African-American audiences, the success for me is will be always how many tickets were sold. Right. They, they don't care about relationships, partnerships. They wonder how many tickets did you sell? How many groups are you bringing in? So that's audience development, very clear focus, clear lane. Community engagement is about creating access to the arts. So it's access. So mm. it's, it's showing you the various targeted communities that this is something you can participate in. You can enjoy this. You can appreciate this because we're in your community. So community engagement has legs. So it's usually taking the product to the people. And so whether that's dance workshops, films, panel discussions, but it definitely is not centered with you coming to me. This is centered on, I'm coming to you for the purpose of showing that you have access to classical music. This is yours just as much as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yep, and we're gonna be in your neighborhood so you can see. And we're gonna try to have with people that look like you so you really can see. Um, so the success metrics for um, CE are not sales. If that happens, that's great, but that wasn't the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal was that awareness, the participation, the number of partnerships that we have that are viable and dynamic, the social media uh, engagement, how many people are sharing posts and things, which are all conversational. None of them are about selling tickets. They're saying, hey, I saw this it was really great. You should come see it too. I'm going next week. You come with me. Um, so that's community engagement. So I much prefer CE because mm -hmm. you don't have the pressure of sales. And people buy tickets now so differently um, than they did 20 years ago. You know, right. people don't want to bring put groups together. It's too much work. You got to collect money. I'm not, I'm not collecting any money. <laughs> yeah. So it's <laughs> CE, I, I think, allows more creativity and innovation. And, you know, and you but, kinda... but it's it's if you if an organization makes it a priority and can afford it, because mm -hmm. you still have your earned income goals and your unearned income goals. So if C isn't bringing it in, then who is still touching these communities of color for the purpose of purchasing tickets? So that still has to be accomplished. Right. And that was, and that actually touches on the next thing I was going to ask about is the idea of community engagement as a means of audience development. Is it less authentic oh, for sure. in that way? I mean, is it, does it, oh, yeah. does it diminish community engagement when you use it as a tool for no. audience development? Mm -mm. I teach a course on that at um, NYU. I mean, you, you, we, we need both. Just want to be clear about expectations. But we need both. So usually audience development, uh, you know, community engagement is a bridge towards audience development because you've got the relationship. And so organically, it's like, OK, well, let me come see. So, for instance, when we're doing our dance workshops and we're out in the various faith based organizations mm -hmm. and we're teaching um, choreography from Alvin Ailey and we're using um, from Revelations and we're using 
um, the music of Revelation. And we actually have the fans, then they're learning that choreography. So naturally they want to see the full piece. I'm like, okay, we did this, well, when is the show? So that's the organic process of it. So that's when it leads to audience development as opposed to, we'll come to teach a dance workshop, but you got to buy 50 tickets. Mm. That's not what we do. Right, right. So, so, so once those goals are met, you know, uh, community engagement, you know, turns into uh, new patrons, uh, uh, new audiences, more money at the end of the day. How does that fit into this cycle? You know, do, do you think that that as, as the capital grows, so should the community engagement, so should, so should other things? What, what are your opinions on that? Once that capital begins to grow, th thanks to the community engagement. Mm -hmm. So at NJPAC, our CE department is now um, six years old, and we have now developed uh, over 30,000 new friends. Uh, we have um, 10,000 people we send our newsletter to, and we've increased the social media by 15,000. Mm. So all of those new people, the job now is to continue to nurture that relationship, and that's what we do. So every year we, we you know, produce 200 events and those events are to keep those 30,000 people engaged. So that doesn't go away. You know, this is the heart of the organization. So you think about the structure of an arts organization. So, you know, is it to just produce work and sell tickets or is it to produce work, build community? So community doesn't go away. Yeah. Community, you have to sustain. How do you sustain that based on relationships and interests? And so the 200 events that we do, that's the focus. And they might, they change from year to year. Um, some years we might do heavy jazz. Some years we do a lot more film screenings. It just depends. Right now at NJPAC, our focus is social justice work mm -hmm. uh, based on the murder of George Floyd. So everything we do now is through the lens of, excuse me, social justice as it affects black people. So they're clear. That's the yep. lens we're using. And so that what has, that has done is open up the other departments to look at what they're producing to see how might it align itself with that. So our Women's Association, which is a group of professional women who, uh, it's about 2,000 of them. And it's by them, let's say at least 50% of them African-American. They now look at their programming to see how can we do things that are aligned with social justice and touching the African-American community. You know, and, and our, our programming department as well, you know, they're, they have now developed several programs and one called Jersey Fresh. And Jersey Fresh looks at, you know, emerging artists and gives them, you know, a half hour or so to present their work. You know, we have a whole film series. So it's, it has uh, enabled the Art Center to pivot to still produce innovative programming that's not relegated to sales, that keeps our CE demographic involved, as well as our regular ticket buyers for something for them to consider because we have no shows for them to come to. Right. You gotta have something. So we've been able to develop that content. Wow. And when, when I think about uh, community and, you know, value, I, I think a lot of what we're talking about these days are rooted in, you know, values, the, the values of uh, Black Lives Matter and, and, um, and, 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 police justice and, and everything, you know. Um, but when I also think about that community value, I think about what a community values as far as what they will pay for, what they will what what they will buy. Um, 
what 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 can you say about the relationship between you know um intrinsic value you know the value of black art the value of art that comes from the community versus how that value translates in dollars and cents i think that <clears throat> people pay for what they value i believe the arts have not done the best job in creating a sense of value mm. for the work so so quick to give out free uh, without an understanding that there's a cost to this. So what? yes, this might be free this one time, but we want you to understand we have to pay the artists, we have to pay, you know, so we didn't do that. And I think that that has um, allowed many people, especially students who then graduate with that same philosophy, I'm not going to pay for a ticket. Mm -hmm. So students, um, <clears throat> targeted communities that you're trying to cultivate relationships with, you know, that all of that then de debunks the idea that these things cost and they cost a lot and you can pay. So I don't believe people can afford the arts. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> no, no, nobody can convince me of that. I mean, we managed to uh, <clears throat> to pay for everything else, right? All, yes. all designers and, you the know, sneakers. the things that we, right, exactly. Yeah, just look at the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> you can go, just stop right there. Just stop at the shoes. You know, we got the little gold. Yeah, no, mm -mm. value. Yeah. Something and we that... haven't done that for the arts. We, you know, we are still, you know, purists in many ways in America uh, about who's has access to the arts. And it's still you know, very much designed for upper class, middle upper class. Mm -hmm. You think about who who should be arts audiences. Um, it's it, we. It's not. It's not in our in our in our DNA yet. It is still over there. Maybe you can have. Maybe you can't over there. And it's just think about how our country, you know, developed this political ethos, mm -hmm. cultural ethos, which was based on. You know, these children escaping from Europe who were, you know, criminals and rapists. That's who was the founding entity that came to America that was on these ships that Columbus allegedly, you know, was cruising on. But he was lost. But anyway, so once he forgot <laughs> here, the, the people he had with him were not heavy thinkers. They were not people that could help build a country that celebrated the arts. That was the last thing they thought about. So just as you think about the evolution, uh, therefore, then when we started the presidents and breaking away from England and all that, arts and culture didn't come with it. Mm. There, was, there was no conversation about that. So as a country, I don't think we have really embraced, I know we haven't, embraced the, the value of the arts. We see that just with the struggle that the NEA has every year. Why in the world does our National Endowment for the Arts have to fight for that little $150 million when we are so happy to spend trillions of dollars on military warfare. Yeah. But the yeah. first thing that, you know, presidents always want to dismantle. Oh, we don't need that, the NEA. Not understanding. That's the very breath that makes us humans. So we still have a ways to go of integrating appreciation and valuing the arts and our culture. We have a ways to go. We're yeah. also young. We're also a young country. I mean, we're only yeah. 500 years old, so. So you compare us to our ancient civilizations, Africa, India, China, they, they had a much longer time. And mm -hmm. you see that when you visit those countries and you think about what do we have uh, culturally that we've built that's beautiful 
you know, we don't have the tomb, the pyramids, you know, we don't have that, that kind of intricate writing, uh, the colors. I mean, I've been to all those tombs. I went to Tutankhamun's tomb all those before they toured. So I saw with the gold and saw the, the aqua blue eyeliner that the women had. And this was BC time, right. still there. You know, and so you look at what, what do we have here in America like that? What we call beauty is natural, you know, the waterfalls and the, the canyons and all that. But we yet, you know, may not have quite that canon of work yet. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's just because we're young. Yep. You, this this is all a, a, in a big way, uh, if you want to look at it in a broader sense, a good segue into, you know, the more Buddhist side of the conversation that I wanted to have. You know, uh, Wayne Shorter, uh, something that he said to me that uh, stuck with me, he talked about the difference between giving a thought versus getting a thought. And I think about that in reference to what you're saying, you know, as far as, you know, really teaching people of uh, that value. It's about changing hearts. It's not necessarily about changing, you know, other things, but how, how do we give those thoughts? How can we begin to broaden um, the value of the arts to communities who have never had a reason to think about the arts as something of value to them, especially considering the racial implications and those sorts of historical things on the arts, so much of the arts anyway? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Wayne is absolutely right. It's the heart that matters. So everything emanates from the heart. And when you change when a person's heart changes, then everything changes. And so how to get to that, I think it's, it's a multi-tiered process. You know, it's no, it's no one step. I think it's everything. I think it's in education. I think it's in our families. It's in our faith-based orientation. Um, you know, it's in our social structure. And so again, it won't happen from our executive leadership because, you know, I, I, I was watching... Um, the Obama special the other night from Love and Happiness, mm-hmm. Love and Happiness, yeah, which was to the end of his tenure. <clears throat> and I mean, clearly, he and Michelle love good music. They love soul music. I don't necessarily think that was supporting arts and culture. You know, that there's difference from entertainment and there's yeah. arts and culture. So how much of an investment are we making in building excuse me, arts and cultural institutions. So, so I think there's a lot of, well, first we need dialogue. We need to talk to our leadership um, in this country that has the opportunity to help build. So to me, if you put together in a room, Darren Walker, who to me is leading the way, he's absolutely leading the way. I mean, the way he's pivoted the whole portfolio of the Ford Foundation and that's making it only focus on EDIA. That's it, that's all he's giving money to. He's got $13 billion. I'm like, okay. So you get him, you get um, the head of Mellon, you get the head of of Guggenheim Foundation, the MacArthur, you know, these leaders, leaders in the field that have the money to back it up, to start having conversations of how they can infiltrate the various layers of life people have. I read an interview once, Darren Walker talked about, he was in Silicon Valley in California, uh, you know, there to raise money from these multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And not one of them talked about arts and culture. They were like, oh, really? You know, they were more interested in giving money for food, 
shortage or for uh, climate control, but arts and culture, nothing. He said he was shocked and devastated because this is our millennials Mm -hmm. who have money, have resources, and they have not included arts and culture as part of their portfolios. So what happened? What did we miss? Only 20-something. What do we miss? <laughs> so th- th- I just think it's a, it's a very multi-tiered process. I know that the arts and ca- arts education field is uh, very dynamic and always looking at ways to deepen their presence in the schools. But if your program has been cut, it's very hard to have an impact there. So, yeah. you know, again, it's we need the national funding support and recognition. And then we have these thought leaders to come together with their resources. Then we wanna look at how people live. Where do you go to school? Where do you worship? What do you eat? How do you socialize? And to me, that's that's the, the effort that we yeah. have to make. We, got, we have to do it. We have to. You know, one of my personal challenges is that um, as a as a critic, um, as one and as a part of my generation, you know, the growing critique of the structure of capitalism, you know, and the idea that these um, that these foundations have to exist for this work uh, to be done. Is, is there no uh, long term vision, or do you have a long term vision of uh, uh, arts equity, community engagement that uh, that doesn't require the big foundations, a, a world in which the foundations don't exist? Um, I, the, well, you know, one thing I've often thought about is the community taking care of itself. Mm. And I always get excited about that. But that has to be communities, again, that have the leadership um, to be able to know how to direct that funding to take care of yourself. So we do it in Harlem. You know, our Harlem Chamber of Commerce is expert at galvanizing resources to take care of our own, which we've been doing for COVID since uh, it started. You know, we thought we would be just providing food uh, for a couple of months, but we just did it today. And we do a thousand meals a day. You know, we have made sure that our kids have laptops and Wi-Fi. You know, and we utilize our radio to talk about measures people should take for uh, protection and where to go to get other things that they need. <clears throat> and so ultimately, I would love to see communities that are resilient and self-serving, but we have such a long way to go to get there. Um, and having those, having the leadership, that's where we also, can strengthen ourselves, I think, as a country, it's building more leaders, really strengthening. What does leadership look like? How do you think as a leader? What, where do you go? What is that network like? Um, not, not just industry related, but global thinkers. I think more of that, that certainly represents all the diversity. And I know there's a lot of think tanks that happen. I know that there's, there's different global forums, but. I don't know how much they focus on teaching uh, communities to be self-sufficient. I, I haven't heard those conversations. 
when you talk about global leadership, um, Daisaku Ikeda instantly comes to mind. I wonder uh, what, well, first of all, I would you know, like to acknowledge that so much of what you say when it comes to community engagement, I hear um, the influence of his teachings, you know, through what, through what you say. And just based on what I've studied in, in my young life of uh, chanting um, and 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 following uh, his his teachings and reading his words. Um, how how has uh, Buddhism impacted your relationship with the conversation of race over the years? So it's allowed me to one understand karma, and karma is not good or bad. Karma is your condition; it's your blueprint. And so having the karma of being an African American woman, you know, certainly I am uh, the recipient of many hundreds of years of suffering. So I get to change that. You know, um, I cannot undo what's happened in the past, but I definitely get to change what that impact can be and how do I live my life uh, to be an example of a humanitarian uh, person that really cares about, you know, people and how people live. So that was the first thing. Second thing is, you know, I've learned that I can use, develop the wisdom to know how to bring awareness on racism and how to start to transform that in, in white people's hearts. How do I do that? That's based on my prayer, based on the, the wisdom that I get, based on the action that I take, chanting to be heard. Um, and then third, you know, I've learned that as an African-American, you know, within our SGI organization, you know, we're continuing to develop ways of being able to change the person you know, each organization has a mission to help build a better society. So you have the NAACP, you got the Urban League, you have Black Lives Matter, all of these, we have to have them. You know, they have a specific purpose, whether it's protest marching, it's fundraising, it's litigation in the courts. The function of the SGI is to change each person. And so by changing each person, then we're able to start to do our what we call our human revolution. You know, so changing from the inside out. And so you've got the mass marches, you have the groups, and with the SGI, it's the individual. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the role the SGI plays in civil rights in addressing, you know, systemic racism. I'm very clear on that. And I, I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic because it goes back to each person taking responsibility for their destiny. So I'm not waiting on you to act right. I'm going to act right. And that's yeah. going to impact you. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. going to be in your orbit. I'm going to be able to show you what this looks like. And that's been my whole life. I've, I see it every day. Definitely go check out her book, Invitation to the Party. I will uh, put a link to that uh, in the description of this. Uh, support a black woman author. Support a black woman author who's out here doing the good work in a huge way. So, yeah, let's uh, get into the triloquy. Randy, don't play with your food. Eat it. Ah, 
All right, Scott. So we are recording shortly after um, a panel that I did with um, the National Philharmonic Orchestra and the Pre-Child Justice Institute. And I I sort of touched on it at the very beginning of this opus. So um, toward the end, um, the president, who I believe is the president, Jim, um, you know, gave his portion of the presentation and talked about how they have marked the goal of 40% um, diverse composers for their next season. And in saying that, um, he sort of, as an aside, said, and I know Garrett is just chomping at the bit to ask why we chose 40%. So I left the meeting, you know, by basically saying why I believe that 40% was the number. Um, I want to just lay out here, you know, keeping it trill, you know, being true and real that I was not trying to be disrespectful, but I just wanted to make it clear that when an institution like the National Philharmonic says that they are down for 40%, I know exactly why that's the number because it's not half or it's not most or even half. So there are donors that would really be shook, Scott, by 70 or 80 or god forbid 100 percent black composers for a season as you've said now we we can sit here and advocate for that but the choice the the truth is folks would be shook wouldn't they yeah so that is why so i understand why and and i'm not a genius and we all understand why so when the institutions are are going there going to the 40 percent or like some institutions that we know of 24 percent or whatever the 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 number they you know uh, may choose it's not just me saying, oh, that's ridiculous. It is a populace of people understanding that you still will not actually see that weight and displease whoever you're answering to, whether that be rich donors or um, a mostly white, non-equitable audience or whatever. So I just wanted to name that No Shade. National Philharmonic or anyone else um, with these lower than 50% numbers, you know, I'm a, I tell, everybody knows I'm on the board for the American Composers Forum. Mm-hmm. So in our equity statement, I was like, we have to use um, 60. So 60% of X that we do, you know, and you can check out the equity statement on the ACF website. But I, I, I think it means something to actually affirm that most of whatever you're going to do in a category when we're talking about equity leans that way. If you want to be safe, do six, let the number be 60%. To me, I think that's safe. That says we are actually dedicated. We center this. And it also says, but you know, we're not ready to, you know, do a hundred percent or for whatever reason they have. But you know, when, when people are like, Oh, well, you know, I'm sure Garrett is just chomping at the bit to ask about that. No, we know why, and not just me, but everyone. We we know that you're answering to people that you know will be shook if you actually tilt the boat to to be mostly equitable. That's my hot take there. Has anyone come right out and said, you're right, that's why we're not going to 50% because of certain donors or no. certain... Peer- okay, no, no, this is because this is my question. Okay. Do they do they fight you when you when you say it's because of the of these don- of this donorship? Do they push back? So I don't know if I'm, I'm making a reference that um, you're unfamiliar with, but uh, when I was growing up, if you really had a hot take for the radio, that you would call into the radio, say whatever you had to say, and end with, "and I'm gonna hang up and listen." Right. So that's basically what I did. So <laughs> okay. So I don't know, but shout out, shout out to them. Look, I thought it was an, an incredible, incredible, incredible uh, presentation. Huge shout out to Alicia Lee. I can't wait to have her on Triloquy. I hope she accepts my invitation. One of the presenters, uh, a composer and performer on the thing. 
thing. But again, I just wanted to, you know, keep my promise. First of all, I told everyone before I said I'm gonna hang up and listen. Mm. <laughs> I, I said I'll I'll talk more on Trilogy. We see y'all Wednesday. But you know, I, I I think we need more of this forward, um, very direct conversation. I'm not I'm not trying. You know, like I said again, no shade, but when it's not half or most. What I see is, well, we didn't want to really offend anyone. We 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 want to make sure that we're still appealing to the wider audience, right? Mm. So that that gets us into uh, triloquy number two for today. So I was listening. To, I talk about my podcast, like my stories, right? So I was listening to the Joe Button podcast, and they got on the conversation of a wider audience, how how that applies to what Grammy voters might say or whatever when it comes to hip hop and X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, I as I do, I apply things to classical music so when i think about the wider audience um to me it inspires the conversation of what are we wider than or broader than when we talk about broadening things and i want to speak specifically so when it comes to this podcast um it has you know been seen that um there are folks that are listening from all sorts of paths all all walks of life mm-hmm. and one of the things that I'm always thinking about is reaching a broader audience but my fear and this is what I want your um your take on or your feedback on my fear is that in reaching that broader audience we dilute the you know the juice of it you know, you mm-hmm. know I, I don't want to become this bland thing you know what, what and and i guess what where the spice is coming from is that when we talk about classical programming is something is to insert problematic word here ethnic to gospel to black dare we say that's what they're really saying mm. you know it doesn't reach to a broader audience. We need to make sure we reach the broader audience as possible. To me, that means the blandest audience, dare I say, the widest audience. So right now I'm thinking a lot about um, reaching an even broader, excuse me, an even broader audience, but at the same time, not caring if, you know, someone is offended if I say the F word every now and again, or, mm. you know, just, you know, you know what I'm saying? Just keeping the, keeping the juice saturated and, and not watering down the gumbo. I think that you can give listeners a little bit more credit. I think that they'll give you the space to drop an F bomb or, or to speak your mind, however you like. Where I would push back is I, I really think it just means reaching beyond your base, mm. who, who, you know, you've got. <clears throat> You know, and they're going to be with you no matter what, right? Yeah. We've seen that in action recently, haven't we? Sure. About a certain base. So, <laughs> um, so for example, you, you talk about reaching a whiter audience. If it were me being the artist, I would probably be trying to do something to tap into a person of color audience, right? Mm. So, and and so, that would be your definition of, of wider. Of wider. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to yeah. get past the base and... You know, I would, I, w- I would love for, for a person of color to take a chance, you know, uh, because I obviously what, what, what does a 50 year old white guy have to say that a young person of color is going to be interested in, Never in, know. in this milieu? Yeah. Right. Never know. I don't. But that would be the goal in order to grow listenership for my album, my podcast, my spoken word yeah. project, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. I would be trying to reach a broader audience, meaning non-white. Yeah. So I guess what's the moral of the story? Um, Shout out to 
Triloquy's base. <laughs> Thank you very much. Also, if you are a creator or someone looking to make music or, or whatever, don't be afraid to really stick to yourself. I think uh, one of the things that I enjoy out of the projects that I consume, you know, um, is that they're really dedicated to what they are. Audience be damned. So I, <laughs> I won't say audience be damned because I love all of y'all and appreciate you. Um, and I'm definitely thinking about, you know, how things can be broader, but at the same time, you know, and, and as as we grow, as the listenership grows every week, maybe, you know, this is my way of saying uh, I'm not going to code switch for y'all or stop cussing for y'all or stop talking about weed for y'all or whatever. Mm. I don't know. At, at this point, I'm ranting. My, my bong hit is starting to wear off. So it's time to it's time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but before we go. Um, on that topic of a broader audience, you know, it just makes me think about how happy I am uh, to have nixed. I think it's safe to say that we have officially nixed the idea of uh, fringe true and real uh, conversations from the fringes of classical music, because what does that even mean? What what are those fringes anyway? The things that we talk about are the things that we believe should be front and center. Do, 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 Do you remember who came up with that phrase? Oh, Randy. 